You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Monster House presents Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Some of our listeners may look at the title of this episode and wonder, why is Monster Talk doing an episode on the platypus? At first glance, this may seem like I'm trying to shoehorn in a nature documentary with no connection to monsters, but let me make my case. Let's just look at the cryptid angle. Longtime listeners will know that I frequently protest the use of the coelacanth, the gigantic deepwater fish that has strongly maintained its outward shape compared to its fossil ancestors from several hundred million years ago, as an avatar of cryptozoology. The cryptozoological literature likes the idea of this living fossil, which I, I get. It sounds cool, but it also demonstrates a gross misunderstanding of evolution and natural selection. The coelacanth of today may be recognizable as similar to its fossil ancestors, but 400 million years of genetic changes have indeed happened. To an untrained eye, you might think that they're the same, but they are not. This is very similar to the crocodilians. Again, if you get past the human tendency to just group a bunch of features together, those animals have also changed dramatically, even though they're recognizably related to each other. I mean, the crocodilians are related to their fossil ancestors, not that they're related to the coelacanths, although with DNA, I guess that's true too. Anyway, my point is, this whole living fossil idea, while dramatic, misses the whole point of what constitutes a cryptid. According to research by a friend of the show, Dr. Brian Regal, the word cryptid was coined in 1983 
by cryptozoologist J.E. Wall, who was trying to make the field more scientifically respectable by pulling away from this idea of monsters. The key feature of a cryptid, then, becomes something about how the monster is legendary, and then the cryptozoology seeks to find the real and natural creatures behind these legends. But nobody was telling stories about the mysterious encounters with the coelacanth. It was just this weird-looking fish that people sometimes caught. The platypus, though? That's another story. We briefly touched on this in our interview, but let me tell you, with a little more detail plugged in, the story of George Kersley Shaw. In 1799, he published one of the first scientific papers on the platypus, but all he had been able to work with was reports from people who had observed the animals and a dried pelt. Like many others who considered the reports, the animal sounded ludicrous. It's a mammal, but it has a bill like a duck. It lays eggs. The Europeans who met them were calling them water moles, but here was a creature that looked like a mashup of multiple kinds of creatures. Now, we have a name for creatures like that, derived from Greek mythology. We call them chimeras. And taxidermied hoaxes were common. So Shaw looked for signs of stitching or other hoax indicators in his specimen, and even though he wrote it up as a real creature, he admitted that it did have the air of trickery about it, yet it was a real animal. So here we have it, a real animal, told about in legend, with incredibly peculiar features. I would posit to you, dear listener, that the humble platypus is a far better candidate as an icon for cryptozoology than the coelacanth. But let's hear more about this animal, because when I say it has incredible features, there's a good chance you may not have even heard of how odd this little animal is. In part one, we're going to be discussing the habitat and the challenges in studying these animals. And in part two, we'll dive deep into their biology. Exciting mammals, the platypus. Monster dog. Tonight, we're talking to Dr. Gilad Bino. And we're going to be talking about one of the most fascinating and, I, at least in my experience, little understood animals uh, out there. But yet, mm-hmm. it has so many unique properties and so many interesting characteristics that I think uh, it's, a, it's a, going to be a real win for us to, to get more information on this. So uh, uh-huh. would you like to introduce yourself, Dr. Bino? Yeah. Hello. Uh, my name is Gilad. Um, I'm a, currently, I'm a researcher at the Center for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Um, I live in Mullumbimby, uh, which is a lovely little town in Australia. And um, I've been studying, I've been very passionate about conservation. Um, and I've been really enjoying the, like, I guess, the scientific process of uh, raising questions and trying to answer them so I kind of this combination of uh, my passion for conservation um, and scientific uh, procedures I guess and frame of frame of mind um, have been keeping me in like academia for I finished my um, I went through like an undergrad and master's and PhD which I completed in 2011 and I've been a full-time researcher since then so it's been like about 11 years um, I've been studying terrestrial and freshwater systems uh, and I spend most of my time now um, studying freshwater ecosystems um, and trying to uh, find ways where we can kind of um, 
strike a balance between the natural environment and and human you know desire for well-being and so i apply science to for conservation and to inform management um and i do that also through education and like what we call like outreach mm-hmm. uh, through like the media and the engagements with um with school and other like you know stakeholders and things like that mm-hmm. Well, you are perfect for this show, and we're so glad to have you here to talk about the platypus today. And I think the first question that we all have is, what's the plural for platypus? <laughs> is it platypuses or platypi? We've been arguing about this. Uh-huh, yeah, definitely the number <laughs> one question I get every time. It's like my my first slide <laughs> in any presentation I give is like, uh, what's yeah. the plural term? So uh, the, the the word, the term platypus is, mm-hmm. a, is a Greek word. That comes from the meaning of like a, f- a flat foot, um, and so because it's a it's a Greek word rather than a Latin one, the plural of um, of platypus would be platypuses or okay. platypodes or oh. even platypoda. Um, but uh, I think there's quite a consensus nowadays on platypuses, and so there we go. Yeah, after you say a lot of like, yeah. Uh, it's it, you get used to it after a while, platypuses, platypuses, and so yeah, it's fine, it rolls off the tongue. So that's good. solved now. But what about the term duck built? Because I grew up in Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the, the term that we used. Is that the correct term, or where did that come from? Yeah, one of the key features of the platypus is it's kind of duck like um uh, bill that it has. Um, and so I think, um, that the, the name is not, it's, it's referred to as duck bill platypus. Um, and I think, uh, whether or like it's the official name, I'm not too sure about that, but it's, um, sorry, I was just thinking about a term like koala bear, which is, you know, mm. they're not actually bears. And I wondered if duck bill platypus was in, inaccurate somehow, or if that's acceptable it, to use that term. You can use it. It's a, yeah. It's not like inappropriate to call a platypus a duck-billed platypus. That's good. It's it's like uh, it's like the American cow. It's okay to casually call it a cow. You don't have to use its scientific name, the moo cow, every time. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think officially it's like just platypus, um, but it's referred to as duck-billed platypus sometimes. Well, we wanted you to talk about this because it's one of the most peculiar animals in some ways, and. Mm-hmm. Famously, I've heard that when the first specimens were sent back to Europe, that the scientists thought it was a hoax. And I thought maybe that's a good theme, if true, and you probably can address that, because it reminds me so much of uh, the chimera and the idea of chimeras, of an animal that's slapped together from parts of other animals. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. not what's going on here, but I think maybe over the course of this conversation, we can talk a little bit about Convergent evolution, how some of these features came to be, but is that true? That that did scientists believe they were being joked upon when they, this, those first specimens were sent back? Yeah, that uh, apparently that's the that's the story. When the first specimens made it, it, it makes it, they they thought it was a hoax, um, but and it, like just it was a it was a dead specimen, um, and so they really thought it was like stitched together. Um, you know, we, we'll talk about all these like weird features that the platypus has, but uh, it, like I always, it makes me wonder. I mean, like, so it, is that the only case where 
maybe it was there like a lot of hoaxes being pulled at the time like was it because well the, there the is it makes you wonder the piltdown hoax yeah and... there, there have been a lot of hoaxes yeah the, <laughs> yeah the fiji mermaid there's lots of gaffes mm-hmm. and um uh, what is it jenny hanover's i might be messing that up um, but th- there's a lot of uh, certainly sea creatures that were sewn together or put together, or you know. Um, so yeah. th- I think there is a lot of hoaxery, a lot of a lot of shenanigans. Um, yeah, <laughs> must have been. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So the platypus was uh, perceived as a hoax. But I think there were. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to. I'm like the platypus expert, but in terms of like the history, I'm trying to scra- scratch my memory. There were some attempts to. I think bring over live specimens it just it really exemplifies how difficult it is to like uh, captive rear platypuses mm-hmm. in terms of like their requirements for you, you know feeding it is quite i think it's one of the more expensive animals to actually keep in captivity mm. well i'm lucky in that i have seen them before i've gone to museums as a kid and so they're i know that they're nocturnal so it's not like you've just kind of come across one uh in the wild really uh, but I'm wondering if you can tell us about its behavior because they're, they're such fascinating creatures. They're so different. Uh, and just, yeah, some of, some of the behavior, uh, questions like, do they lay eggs and how long do they live and what do they eat? Anything you can tell us about them? Uh, I can uh, yeah, go into like an hours long monologue. Yeah, yeah. read your, read your <laughs> yeah, character yeah, exactly. sheet to us. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, let's dive. Um, literally, that, so platypuses spend most of their time in the water. Uh, they're dependent. They live. They're endemic to Australia, um, specifically Eastern Australia. Uh, they're found all the way from like far north Queensland around Cooktown all the way down to Tasmania. So we're, you know, for our international listeners, if you look at the map, like that's a continental, you know, obviously Australia is is a massive landmass. Um, and the um, extent of the platypus spans across a very large latitudinal gradient um which means that it, ha- it inhabits a wide range of climates um all the way from like uh from tropical up in far north queensland to uh alpine in southeast um new south wales and victoria like the alpine range and all the way down to tasmania which is um yeah it's, it's quite quite cold there and um um and so it it inhabits historically. I mean, there are fossils of monotremes. That's the the family of mm-hmm. of the platypus. So uh, the platypus is related. It's mm-hmm. it shares like the uh, taxonomic family with the echidna. And so platypuses, mm-hmm. uh, the the monotremes. You find fossils of platypuses in, um, in like South America and Antarctica and things like that. So it, it's you know it, genetically and evolutionary, it has a quite a we'll, we'll go into that maybe later but um it it is um i guess it, it occurred across a wide range of environments uh and it's mm-hmm. uh prehistoric history it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So currently the platypus uh, in Australia is confined to it inhabits rivers and freshwater systems um it is dependent on in terms of its food it eats uh what we call like macro invertebrates or like the big spineless bugs as i call them um uh, which are a lot of it is like the nymph and larval stages of dragonflies and mayflies and damselflies um, it also eats freshwater crustaceans. We, we call them yabbies here. So the glass yes. shrimps, they're quite small. Um, we're not sure like how much of their diet is, um, I mean, they they may eat maybe small fish. I don't know if it's like incidental or not, or they could eat some of these like um, freshwater worms and things like that. Um, so that's, that's their diet, um, which is, Really, the you know there there some of these species the these like water bug species are uh, could be quite sensitive to the water quality and so like really where you find platypuses their platypuses are, seem to be quite resilient to like varying conditions um, we can even find them in some degraded systems but it's really dependent on two things uh, food availability and the condition of the riverbanks so platypuses they spend most of their time in the water foraging for food uh, but when they're not foraging they dig burrows in the sides of banks so they really dependent on like stable earthen banks and so they dig these burrows and that are dependent on like the stability of these burrows are really dependent on the condition of the like overhanging trees what we call like the riparian vegetation so um, that's really important for the, like these riparian, the condition of the riparian vegetation along rivers is really dependent, like uh, very important for platypuses and also for like maintaining the food web in, in the water. These burrows, are they for a single animal or for a family group or how, how big are these? So platypuses are solitary and I'll, I'll go in a second into the, like their mating behavior, but they're, they're pretty much solitary we don't really have a good understanding in terms of like their interactions with each other. Sometimes uh, maybe we can talk about it. Uh, like when we, when we trap platypuses, sometimes we trap, like I'll get in, a, we put a net in the water and sometimes I'll get two platypuses at the same spot in the net. And it makes me like wonder like two females. And I, so I wonder what sort of interactions they might have. But but mostly they're solitary. Now, platypuses, they have what we call like uh, resting burrows, uh, which are relatively short. 
borrows that they use to spend the, the daytime. So platypuses spend most of their time foraging at night. In winter months, they don't go into like a hibernation or a torpa or anything like that. They, they, platypuses stay active throughout the year, even in alpine climates. Uh, a colleague of mine has this story of seeing platypuses forage underneath like a, a sheet of ice in the alpine region. I've been catching platypuses in sub-zero temperatures, like we're talking Celsius, where our nets kind of freeze um, overnight and we have to thaw them by splashing like, you know, like a bit of freezing cold water on it just to untie the knots. But um, but platypuses, yeah, they, they keep going. Um, so they have these resting burrows. Um, and during the breeding season, platypuses, the female platypuses dig a nesting bar, which are much more complex in structure and they can extend up to like a, they, they, I can, they think they span almost like in total, total length can be 20 to 30 meters. Um, a very complex. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very complex structure with like dead ends um, and potentially like fake entrances. I'm not too sure if it's like intentionally, mm. but they go through a fair bit of effort to construct these like uh, nesting burrows. Mm. Um, and they end to, so the, you know, as the name refers to it, they, they build nests. So platypuses um, construct a nest. They start breeding during September, here october which is kind of uh spring um mm-hmm. and they um they they build these nests with they they carry it's it's a it's a funny thing i'll, I'll send you a photo but platypuses they they're able to fold their tail and they can carry nesting material and they build this really beautiful nest inside a chamber there um mm. and they in which they lay one or two eggs um to answer your question, though, um, in, in like they, platypuses, I don't think they share a borrow, definitely not a nesting borrow, but that they don't share borrows at the same time. So like they don't, um, yeah, in terms of like they're they, they again they're solitary. So but they mm-hmm. but a platypus can use multiple borrows, and so what we see is that the same borrow can be used by multiple individuals, um, but not at the same time. So they don't like, you know, like huddle in together at the end of a a long night and, you know, and things like that. So, yeah. Well, I've got a question for you. Since they're they're solitary and they're nocturnal and they just seem so elusive, are they endangered? That's been a really big problem and and was really what got me into this whole thing is – we were chatting to um, a colleague, a researcher called Tom Grant. He's almost like semi-retired now, but he's he spent all his life studying platypuses. Um, and and one thing through discussions that we've had with him originally was that we, because of the difficulty, like the platypuses, they're so cryptic. They spend all their time in the water and mostly at night. The best times to see a platypus, if you're like in Australia and you want to go see a platypus, is either dusk or dawn, um, and you have to go and wait by the river, and you know maybe you'll get a like in some places where you can get a glimpse of a platypus or two, and um, 
if the times, the timing in the season is right, like you, somebody just sent me a video of two platypuses breeding. So yeah, you, you can definitely get glimpses of them. Um, cool. But it's really hard to understand, es- estimate numbers from these kind of glimpses. And so the platypus has really been suffering from out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality um, where everyone's like, oh yeah, they're, you know, there are platypuses in the river, um, but they're so hard to see, but surely they're fine. Um, <laughs> and and so we, we I started studying these platypuses uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. And one of the first things that we did was we looked at old historical newspapers that have been digitized in Australia, um, which, um, and we searched for any term or re- reference for a platypus. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's only anecdotal, obviously it's not like a, you know, a robust way to accurately estimate, uh, but it does give you a bit of insights. And what we've seen is, uh, we, we came across accounts of people describing platypuses in numbers far greater than what we commonly see today. So People referring to like seeing a migration of platypuses moving downstream or referring to them as a mob, which is like yeah, a group, a collective of, of individuals or seeing dozens of platypuses in, in one sitting. Um, so these numbers, like are, I, I spend, you know, my time trying to catch as many platypuses as I can when I go to places. Um, and like the most I've caught in a night was, uh, you know, six um, so to, to imagine a place where I'd go to and see dozens of platypuses is, um, yeah, is beyond, you know, my experience. Um, and so there's, I, my, our conclusion from that is that there's definitely been a decline, um, in, in the number of platypuses, um, across their range. Uh, we know certain areas where platypuses have gone, have have gone extinct have been local extinctions um and so there's there's this term it's called um shifting baselines it's um it's when when we don't have good data for anything really um and and we're not keeping track of what happens over time our perception and collective memory changes and you see that with um uh, like fisheries and recreational fishing in terms of like the size of fish that people used to catch and the numbers. Um, oh, and so yeah, we that's, like that, the, that's, that's like the bias of the present. What, what we know we think's always been so, and that's not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So we, that, that's, we, you know, like, so we know that's been happening. There are impact on the natural uh, world environment around us has been huge. Um, and so we think that the platypus is no different um, to other, you know, species around the world and, and especially Australia. I mean, Australia has a very poor track record in terms of like the extinction rate of, of species. It has like the, the worst mammal extinction rate in, in the world. Um, and so it has the highest land clearing rate currently in developed countries and one of the highest in the world. Um, and so there's been the, the, the Australian landscape has been, uh, tremendously modified since European colonization, uh, of Australia about 200 years ago. Um, so, so the, the, the problem with the platypus is really, 
um we don't have good there's no there's no like monitoring framework for platypuses no one's been really sure. tr keeping track of platypuses with the exception of uh, passionate researchers um and so we know like they've gone they've gone extinct from south australia so they where they're listed as endangered um from the mainland there there's an introduced population in kangaroo island um and they've last year they were listed as uh, a threatened species as vulnerable in the state of victoria um mm. we made a formal submission for assessment under like the federal um uh federal law it's called the epbc act here in australia um, to potentially list the platypus as a threatened species. But um, uh, like our assessment was declined given like the, you have to hit certain thresholds to meet that. that there's very clear criteria of what constitutes as a threatened species. Um, there's these IUCN red listing criteria, which is kind of the global standard for what is considered a species, the extinction risk of a species. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really didn't, given the available data um and like we it was very difficult to um provide a robust estimate about like the extent of decline for a, a species that is so difficult to monitor and and has such a wide range which is kind of it makes it even harder yeah that's an incredibly difficult challenge if you don't have a good baseline to try to figure out what are you can't draw a graph if all you have is you know random points and, and like you don't know mm -hmm. what they mean um have, has anybody looked at using environmental dna to get some baseline material so okay so for our assessment like we were heavily reliant on any observation of a platypus made by members of the public or any like kind of bycatch through scientific research or you know surveys of, of for fish and things like that um so we were using that as a baseline to kind of infer about potential declines, looking at like when was the last year a platypus was recorded or observed in a certain area as an indicator of potential uh, decline in, in numbers and um, distribution. Um, we were, we we're coming close to that. Like the criteria for listing is for as like the entry level is if you show a decline greater than 30% in distribution of numbers. Um, so we were coming close, but we, we now we've launched, sorry, I'm going to do a plug-in, but we did launch a, like a citizen science soft a program with the Australian Conservation Foundation. And so it's like the Platy project and it does encourage people to look at it. It, 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 it there's a, like, a, it, it feeds continuously from the Atlas of Living Australia, which is kind of the national database for, wildlife observations um and so it, it it taps into that and and provides a like a real-time summary of where platypuses have been last seen and summarizes it by the the recency of observations and really helps prioritize and direct effort for people to go and you know maybe be the first person to ever spot record a platypus in that area or record a platypus in an area where they haven't been seen in over 20 years so that kind of information is really important for us to um you know, slowly progress towards coming up with like a robust understanding of where platypuses occur. And to answer your question more recently, in terms of like the environmental DNA, environmental DNA um, is basically an approach where uh, we can collect um, samples from the environment uh, mm -hmm. and look for traces of genetic material. And so it's, um, we can do that in, in freshwater systems. So we, 
basically collect some water. We pass it through a filter that's able to uh, really just like trap the fine sediment and and genetic material. Um, and then we can take that to the lab and, and really amplify what we're seeing there. Um, and and so this has been a, a magnificent tool to uh, try and understand occurrences of, of species. So environmental DNA really gives you, you get a certain signal of how much genetic material you have in your sample. Um, but it does in, a, in, in, in essence, it just gives you whether like a presence absence. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't have the, like the finesse or the accuracy of like trying to understand how many animals you have there. We also don't do it in freshwater in rivers where, you know, the water is kind of flowing. Obviously we don't have a, like an accurate understanding of like, if you take a sample, in a in a site where that genetic material originated from and and how long it takes to degrade in the water right and, right are you getting the same catfish 15 miles apart you know it's like is yeah, it, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. so it gives a it gives you kind of an under a sense of like within like let's say the, the you know the two kilometers or three kilometers upstream at, at the most um but we've we there's a definitely uh we're using edna nowadays to f- specifically for platypuses and other freshwater species so there's a a massive effort now um by colleagues of mine in, in new south wales and victoria and i just came back from queensland where uh, we did some surveys there, and so um, yes, the, to answer the, the yeah to add the short the short answer to your question is yes, environmental DNA is um, is a really effective tool to just like presence absence. It's not a like you you can definitely get um, false negatives. Um, you can definitely take a sample and get no platypus data there. And, yeah, like there they, they just did a big study on Loch Ness and weirdly didn't get any Loch Ness <laughs> monster data. So yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Gilad Bino discussing the platypus. This is part one of a two-part look at these creatures. Today, we discuss the challenges for biologists in studying a solitary nocturnal mammal that likes to burrow into riverbanks. Next time, we'll be discussing the many peculiar biological features that make the platypus and monotremes in general so peculiar. But we'll also find that they don't represent a weird biological offshoot as much as an extreme survival of an ancient line. Egg-laying, venom, Electrical detection. We'll learn all about that stuff in our next episode. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Good Job Brain, I Know What Scares You, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. You could have done a lot of things with your time, but you chose to spend it with us, and for that, we thank you.
This has been a Monster House presentation. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.